The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Gavin Muller. Today's episode is part two of our conversation on his new book, Breaking Things at Work, The Luddites Were Right About Why You Hate Your Job. We talked about Taylorism and the de-skilling of workers and about how automation was used by American military planners during the Vietnam War in order to maintain control of the increasingly mutinous US Army. And finally, we talked about why, in spite of how the increasing deployment of de-skilling technologies made working conditions worse and more dangerous, many union leaders in both the United States and Europe supported the imposition of these new technologies. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is The Force of Nonviolence by Judith Butler. According to the New York Times, as a strategy of resistance and protest, nonviolence is often seen as passive and resolutely individual. Judith Butler's philosophical inquiry argues that it is in fact a shrewd and even aggressive collective political tactic. Now available in paperback, Butler reminds us that what is deemed violence or nonviolence is a matter of interpretation, and that the state maintains a monopoly on deciding which acts are understood to constitute violence at all. It's out now from Verso Books, and you can buy it directly from their website or get it as part of your Verso Book Club membership. Go to versobooks.com for more information. I also interviewed Judith about the book in episode 80. And now to today's interview. Gavin Muller is the author of Media Piracy in the Cultural Economy, Intellectual Property and Labour under Neoliberal Restructuring. He's a contributing editor at Jacobin and a member of the Viewpoint magazine editorial collective. His new book, which was the subject of our conversation, is Breaking Things at Work, The Luddites Were Right About Why You Hate Your Job. One of the most important figures in the so-called rationalisation of the workforce and the de-skilling of workers is Frederick W. Taylor, who you write about in some detail in the book. Could you say something about Taylor and what came to be known as Taylorism? Yeah, so Frederick Taylor is a significant figure and also somewhat of an eccentric figure in the history of work and technology. He came from a a fairly well-off family, was kind of groomed to follow in his father's footsteps, go to the university and, and enter the law profession. And he kind of washed out. He had what they referred to then as a kind of nervous temperament, right? Some kind of anxiety issues. And he ended up working in a factory and worked his way up from the shop floor into management positions. Now, we might presume that, hey, maybe this guy, he's working in the factory. He's around his fellow workers. He's, he's becoming, despite his class background, he's becoming more sympathetic to their way of doing things since he's got that 
that perspective. But if anything, the opposite was the case. He was increasingly annoyed with his co-workers and with the other workers in the factory. He, he thought that they were lazy. He thought that they were stupid. He thought that they were continually shirking their duties and was just really put out that these other workers did not seem to take the job as seriously as he did. So he set himself a task, which was to try and rationalize the work that these people were doing. This was actually something that was fairly novel in factories at the time. We're talking about the end of the, the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century in the United States. It was fairly uncommon if you owned a factory that you would really understand very much about what was going on on a kind of day-to-day -day basis. It was actually something that, the, the, that you kind of relied upon workers to sort of develop their own labor processes. We talked a little bit about formal and real subsumption previously, and, and, and you see something, something like that going on, where you know, workers were kind of just left to you know, operate smelting machines or something like that. They were kind of left to their own devices. So even though they've been brought into the factory, to some extent, there's still something of that, that more craft element of them having more autonomy over their work. Right. And no one is, is really paying attention to how these things are made and, and spending a lot of time and effort into rationalizing it. So that's precisely what Taylor proposed to do. And what he did was he would time the movements of workers and then he would try to devise techniques to essentially just to speed them up. Now, as the legend of scientific management has been passed down over the years, you get all these kind of things about, yeah, you know, making workers more efficient, you know, relieving burdens, rationalizing things and coming up with new innovative techniques. And some of the people who came along later in the tradition of scientific management did do a few of those things. Taylor himself, though, was really better at typing himself as performing some kind of science. If you actually look at what he did, he would essentially time a worker and then kind of use a sort of rule of thumb method to say, well, I, I think this guy could have done this much more work, this much more rapidly. And then he would sort of badger workers into essentially working faster. And the kind of symbol of this was his stopwatch, where he would time all the movements of these workers to try and get them to essentially to work faster, work harder, and eliminate all these forms of downtime that workers had become accustomed to incorporating into their sort of day-to-day -day routines. The followers of Taylor were able to refine some of the, this stuff and make it less, uh, make it, and try to make it more scientific, right? But the principles, the principles that Taylor identified were probably the biggest breakthrough. What he said was the situation where workers understand how to do the work and management doesn't, that's the source of all the problems. What you need to do is you need it to be quite the other way around. The management should have a, a kind of comprehensive view about how work is done and how things are produced. And you don't want workers to have that comprehensive viewpoint because then they understand where they can get away with things, where they can carve out extra time, vulnerabilities in the production process if they wanted to halt production for some reason. It gives them all sorts of power. So if you separate the worker from the knowledge of the work process, and you make him just do repetitive tasks or only do a, a, a small portion of the production process, 
then these workers won't have that knowledge and therefore will have less power, right? And management will have the power. And workers will also, by virtue of that, become more replaceable because you won't be reliant on their development of skill and technique and knowledge of production. So his big kind of, the philosophical breakthrough was this separation of knowledge from execution, right? This is the fundamental part of, you know, of scientific management and something that travels down through the history of scientific management into the way that technologies are deployed today. In fact, you can look at Adam Smith, right, who's writing, of course, you know, many, many years before, before Taylor, right? And Adam Smith was kind of looking at the division of what he called the division of labor. And this is, you know, Marx picks this up as well. And Adam Smith is kind of touring a pin factory. And he's sort of shocked, right? He's like, you know, because they, they had done some of this in the manufacture of pins, right? They, they'd kind of divided up parts of the production process. And Smith was very concerned. He's kind of held up as this kind of beacon of, of free market economics today. I don't think that Adam Smith would fit very comfortably among, you know, the kind of libertarians and Hayekians and anarcho-capitalists that hold him aloft today. He was concerned, he was a moral philosopher, right? He was concerned with the good life. And he didn't think the good life was going to come from this. He's like, these workers are just going to do the same repetitive thing all the time. It's going to kind of you know, they're, they're not going to develop as a person. It's going to stunt them as a person, right? It's going to make them, he worries, you know, will it, will it make them dumber? Will it make them like less, you know, less uh, deep of a person, right? But those are actually exactly what Taylor wanted to accomplish because he thought that that was, that was what the perfect worker would be. It would be actually, you know, Taylor was always comparing workers to animals, right? To horses, to brutes. That's what he envisioned as the perfect worker would be precisely this thing that that bothered Adam Smith so much when he was kind of touring some of these early factories at the end of the 18th century. Obviously, Taylorism is justified in terms of efficiency and productivity. But to your mind, is that really a cover story for what is actually going on, which is that assertion of, of management control that you describe? Obviously, at the time, Taylor was around in the context of quite fierce labor struggles as well. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think one reason I think it's important to remember that, you know, people who went back and tried to evaluate, uh, you know, kind of test some of his studies really found them very shoddy on a scientific basis. So there's no, he's just making up numbers. He's making up benchmarks. There's no, there's no real objective kind of measurement going on here. He's just kind of pulling it out of thin air. That's one thing to keep in mind is it a lot of this stuff, you know, the efficiency came from pushing people to work harder, right? That's the efficiency came from workers, you know, having to go faster, right? They're more productive. Yes, productivity goes up. But a big reason behind that is the speeding up of work. And I think rather than see it as a kind of scientific process or, or, or rationalization, I think we should see it in a political sense, because that is really also how Taylor himself viewed it. He was finally going to be victorious over these lazy workers who never treated, who just never liked him, never got along with him. He was going to finally get the upper hand, right? 
I thought a very interesting example you give in the book is regarding the increase in automation that occurred in US production during the Second World War in the arms industry. And I suppose one would think that in the context of a life and death struggle like that, the necessity of of producing weapons at scale and in time to serve the military in the various theatres around the world, you would expect that automation in that context would solely be about achieving efficiency gains. But you also dispute that. Can you explain why? Yeah, so there's a few things going on. One is that efficiency was a side goal for the military. What they were mainly concerned with was predictability, right? You order a certain number of planes, you want those planes created. If you have to spend extra, that's the way it goes. The military is fine to do that. They can, especially in the context of the World War II, right? Cost is not the object. What they needed was predictability. And the problem they were facing was widespread labor struggle. In fact, by many measures, the high point of labor struggles in American history took place during World War II. Interestingly enough, strikes were completely illegal, right? So these were wildcat strikes. These were unauthorized illegal strikes that nevertheless happened practically every day. In part, there was a kind of tight labor market, right? You have so many people overseas fighting wars that the people left home, there's not as many people to replace them, right? You know, if they walk off, if they break the law, if they've broken rules at work, that may be a problem, but you're going to probably need them to come back in short order to keep working. So that kind of power that kind of, and confidence led to these massive kind of labor struggles, right? The other thing that happens at this time is the introduction of computer-controlled numeric manufacturing, a major technological breakthrough in automation. So this is a really big kind of scientific breakthrough, right? But the historian David Noble writes about very well and very in a very detailed way and very lucid way about ultimately the machines that they came up with that was not the only kind of option on the table there were other kinds of technical equipment that could have achieved some of the same gains and in fact might have done an even better job but the problem of these technological alternatives was that unlike computer numeric control They didn't efface the necessity of having kind of skilled technical workers who would direct the work, right? So once again, you know, more productive technologies were kind of abandoned because they didn't achieve that kind of goal of Taylorism, of separating knowledge from execution, of de-skilling elements of the labor process, and therefore disempowering the workers. The choice, the technological choice, was a political one, right? Not one that was rooted purely in the needs of efficiency, right? And I think this is, again, you know, when we're looking at the present day, we're bombarded with all sorts of tales of machine learning and artificial intelligence and automation and, and robots, And to me, when you read the history of the introduction of these kinds of technologies, you should always kind of ask yourself, go back to that original kind of political conflict that Taylor identified so well, which is, is it about separating knowledge from execution? Is it about isolating the worker from the entirety of the work process? Is it about removing elements of know-how or development of skill that might possibly give workers some kind of edge or some kind of sort of base of power, you know, in their, you know, they're in their own knowledge, in their own kinds of know-how and skill 
that prevents them from being controlled or being replaced, right? And I think if you if you have that in mind, you can see that at work in all manner of technologies, old and very very new. Another conflict that was important to the history of automation, which you write about, was the Vietnam War, which I think it's reasonably well known that that was very important in terms of the development of containerization in the shipping industry at at ports and so on. But the other aspect of the war that you talk about is the way in which automation became a way for the American military establishment to assert control over its own army in the field, which in the course of the conflict was becoming increasingly mutinous. Could you talk about that as well? Yeah, this is the old kind of hat that officers always face. You know, you get your platoon to aim their rifles and a certain percentage of those soldiers will deliberately either not fire or fire too high. You know, people don't want to kill other people. And so this is continually a problem for militaries. And one reason that actually a lot of techniques of disciplining people to to perform certain repetitive actions come from the military, right? As much as as from industry. In the case of the Vietnam War, this is the most uh, a technological war, right? High-tech war. Uh, you have the development of, of sensors, of automated bombing, and even drones to kind of track and surveil and anticipate troop movements. So the other kind of aspect of this was that this was a war that increasingly relied upon aerial bombardment. So the Air Force is, in many ways, the most high-tech branch of the armed services. And they kind of took the lead on this conflict. And in part, it's because when people are separated from the people they're they're supposed to kill, it's a lot easier for them to do their jobs. And even then, you still had things like automated triggers for releasing bombs, right? So they didn't want to put too much control in the hands of the crews of the aircraft, right? And it's interesting, too, because this was a war that was run by, you know, very top-down way by Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, who was noted before he became Secretary of Defense as was working in the auto industry. So you have this kind of interesting continual sort of feedback of techniques of rationalization and control that go from kind of the pinnacle of Fordist industry in the auto industry and flow into the military and, and then back and forth, right? So this was also a war, the first computerized war. McNamara wanted, you know, lots of data on how the conflict was going. So this is the time of the Rand Corporation then? Right, right. And I mean, Rand did a lot of things, you know, some kind of very weird things, you know, this kind of Cold War, you know, where you have a fuzzy mandate, but lots and lots of money and resources. But one thing that that he wanted, you know, and many historians of the Vietnam War or people who say what went wrong was they were looking for things like body count, right? They were looking for statistics. This is actually something that brought him into conflict with a lot of the military establishment. A lot of the generals at the time believed that war was more art than science. You had to rely on the, the, the accumulated skill and knowledge base of people who had fought wars. And you had to, you know, trust your gut and, and those kinds of things. And McNamara had very little time for that kind of thinking. This meant that the reliance on computers and the reliance on technology meant that science itself was deeply politicized in the war, which I think is something that's also very relevant for our day. We had a, there was a number of organizations created by scientists themselves to encourage people not to participate in war efforts and to think about ways they could intervene and promote anti-war 
viewpoints and, and positions. And you also had targeting of technology by the anti-war movement at home. You know, computers were at the time very large, very expensive, and required a large building, typically in a university. And students were, you know, a, a major pillar of the anti-war movement. And you have a lot of instances that I write about where students targeted these computers to try to disrupt the war effort. Just going back to the way in which the unions related to the development of, of automation and, and, and the rationalization of the workplace. So you write quite a lot about the way in which the workers' movement of the early 20th century, or at least the leaders of the movement, or or many of those leaders, were actually quite supportive of the imposition of some of these practices. Why did they take that view, given how workers themselves actually experienced the imposition of Taylorism and and their de-skilling through technology? I think, on the one hand, there was a kind of a deal made, which was, look, if we can incorporate new technologies if we can raise the productivity of workers, if these companies are more profitable and you hold up your end of the bargain by, you know, reducing kind of labor strife and handling these things, then there can be a kind of shared prosperity, right? Wages will go up, benefits will be increased, maybe retirement will come earlier. And companies did these things, right? They, and, and unions brokered that as long as control over production was left off the table, right? And there's a lot of reasons that we can think about behind that. If you're, maybe if you're a union bureaucrat, you're a little bit more divorced from what the particulars of work are and, and you know, a new machine that doesn't make your job that much worse, you know, that just makes some, some people down the line. Um, so, it, so it becomes a problem of, are these unions responsive to their members? Are they democratic? You also have a situation where political radicals have been removed from the unions. So there's not really a strong kind of anti-capitalist or post-capitalist kind of perspective on what unions might do, right? So I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons why we can think about why organized labor decided to leave those things aside. But what I want to try to dramatize in the book is they did leave those things aside, even though there was a lot of evidence that workers were not so happy with that. There's a very famous example. I really like the example for a few reasons. When certain forms of automation, there's kind of a new round of automation that hits industrial production in the late 60s and early 70s, and that faces a lot of pushback, essentially because ostensibly American auto companies are saying we have to increase our productivity to compete with these rising auto companies in in Germany and Japan. So we have to really light a fire under our bellies and really get going, right? Really, really pick up the pace, use these new technologies. And workers hated it. They were forced to work faster, harder. Injury rates skyrocketed. People are using technology they're not familiar with. It's making them work faster. They're more worn out. They're more tired due to that. And so there's a lot more accidents, right? It's, it's carnage. I mean, really, the history of industrial production is, is one of violence. But this is a notable uptick and, and provokes a very strong response. Something I was reading about recently, this strike in 1972 at Lordstown, which is the major production facility of General Motors, which was the Amazon of its time, the largest corporation in the world, And it's funny because workers, there had been a big strike just two years before and major benefits were won. And then two years later, 
in response to this automation, you have another strike coming from rank and file workers, right? And not only are they responding to these new work pressures, but they're also actually responding to the counterculture of the time. Not only is their work becoming more dangerous, it's becoming more repetitive and dull, right? They were feeling quite disenchanted with their jobs, right? That, and the prospect of working at these jobs, even though they paid very well. They were the, these were the best paying jobs that a lot of these people could get. And yet the prospect of working those jobs for 20 years or 30 years, they couldn't deal with that, right? It was just unimaginable. There, there was something in the counterculture as well that had opened up the, this prospect of, can life be more fulfilling? Can work be more fulfilling? Are there other kinds of values beyond, you know, we can buy a nicer car or a bigger house? And workers were asking those things too. I think we have a tendency, both in our evaluations of radical movements of the late 60s and early 70s, but also in our perspective today to draw this kind of line between what workers want and what a more bohemian perspective on, on the world might want. And the sort of the hard hats versus the hippies kind of narrative. Right. And like, and, and this idea that, you know, left politics is full of these hippie dreamers that are, you know, read too many books in college and they don't understand what workers want. Workers want more money, you know, or, or better, better hours or something like that. Or, or, or more patriotism. Yeah. <laughs> yes, right. But actually, if you look at this like very significant two-week strike, the papers called it industrial Woodstock, right? Because a lot of these workers were actually adopting features of the counterculture that was informing their, their politics. And ultimately, so they struck for two weeks, which is a, a rather long strike when you consider, you know, this, is, this would have meant thousands of vehicles coming off the line that, that didn't, you know, that's a pretty significant hit in, in GM's profits. The strike was settled, but once again, those demands were not heard. Workers got pay increases, they got some other kind of minor material benefits. And they actually achieved, uh, they actually slowed down the line. But what they didn't change was the content of the work and they didn't change the way that people related to it. And they certainly didn't give people more direct control over their work. So I think that it's telling because you're able, at least in, in times of profitability, to get greater pay out of capitalists. You're even able maybe to get some quantitative changes in working conditions. But what they will be very loath to give up is any element of control over the production process, right? That is not on the table. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.